Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. G'day and welcome to the call 10 stocks picked by you two experts one hour. It's... Uh, I was going to say Tuesday, in fact, Thursday, the 22nd of December, it's that time of year. Um, And our two experts on the show today, Ben Clark from TMS Capital and Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. Welcome, guys, to both of you. Um, Ben, how are you looking at the markets at the moment? Obviously, you know, we know where we're at at the end of the year. Volume's very thin. People looking at it to go away. That Santa rally fizzled. Then we had that consumer confidence figure overnight out of the States, um, you know, that lifted more than expected. What are your expectations as we head into the new year? Um, I I think we might see a bit of a rally over this, you know, to me it sets up well for the Santa rally because we've had this bit of a pullback coming into the middle of December. Um, You know, we typically do see it's a lot of global pension fund rebalancing tends to happen on the end of quarters. And when you see... You know, typically, if equities have underperformed over asset classes, then money gets reweighted in their favour. So that should be um, should be good. Um, and then I think all eyes, you know, again turns to the next inflation print. We've had two plus point twos in the last two months now, and although central banks are still beating their chests and talking tough, if that trend does continue, that bodes well potentially going into the new year. So. Um, you know, we're a year into this bear market now. Typical bear market lasts for about 15, 16 months. So I sort of think wouldn't rule out a, um, another retest on the low in the first quarter of this coming year. Mm. But I think that'll be driven by how these inflation prints look. Yeah, Scott, what, what are your thoughts there? What, um, what sort of data do you think we need to look for? And, and just given where perhaps where markets are poised at the moment? Yeah, Andrew, Ben, good afternoon. It's a tough one, isn't it? I think we're talking sentiment right now, I think more than fundamentals, quite honestly, at least if you're a long-term investor, in terms of short-term movements and what might change the market's mind. Obviously, over the long term, we want to see economic growth come back, inflation come down, rates normalise, all that kind of stuff. Um, In the short term, I think it's really a sense that the rate rises are over and that inflation is, if not dead, under control and going in the right direction. Now, there may be rallies between before, during, after, and of course, there may well be falls during that period as well, because sentiment is absolutely running the markets right now. I don't think anyone, look, 12 months ago, I don't think anyone thought we'd be here, but six, five, four months ago, I don't think this this situation should be a surprise for investors. We saw a big jump on the wall on Wall Street in October. We saw a big jump here in November. Um, to some degree, maybe we front run the rally. Maybe we're just hoping against hope, and then December's taken some of that hope away. So this is very much a battle for sentiment in the short term. In the long term, obviously, it's the fundamentals that matter, and I think that's obviously company profits. It's what happens with the economy here and globally in 2023, and of course, the eyes, inflation, interest rates. Mm. All right. Well, let's um, take a look at some stocks, perhaps uh, this hour that you might be willing to buy or sell as we uh, move into the end of the year. The first uh, five we're going to look at, actually in the uh, in the finance sector, uh, Suncorp, NetWealth, GQG Partners, Block, and Westpac. And for our stock of the day, well, in fact, um, Kogan making news this morning. And to get the detail, we're going to cross to the Osbys newsroom, and Lizzie O'Neill is going to join us to tell us the latest. 
Good afternoon, Andrew. A bit of M&A activity from Kogan. It has snapped up luxury furniture retailer brossa.com.au for $1.5 million. Now, the deal takes Brossa out of, it, of administration, but Kogan will need to provide logistical support to thousands of customers who are still waiting on orders. Now, the deal will also be funded from Kogan's existing cash reserves, Andrew. Lizzie, thanks very much. All right, so let's carry on the conversation with Kogan. And uh, Scott, I know you are very much favoured this stock. I'm wondering what your thoughts mm -hmm. are right now. Of course, it was a COVID winner. Then it had that yep. issue unwinding as far as inventory is concerned, where it really battled mm -hmm. trying to get that right. Um, yeah. So how are you looking at the stock right now then? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, it's been a, it's been a really tough 12 months. I should say I own the shares, by the way, for full disclosure. So let's get that out of the way. Uh, I I think this is a st if you if you like Kogan shares, you don't like Kogan shares. You take a particular view. My view and why I like, I've recommended it, why I own it is I think if you took out three to five years, if they can continue growing the number of customers using the platform and the frequency with which those customers purchase, the rest kind of takes care of itself. Now, I don't mean that in terms of not worrying about anything else on top of that. What I'm saying is size-wise, they were growing at 20% annualized up through COVID. Now, sales have fallen away. People went back to the stores. That shouldn't surprise anybody either. So the market got ahead of itself at 25 odd bucks. I think the market is probably getting behind itself, maybe if I can say it that way, uh, when it comes to the current circumstance. If you believe Kogan can continue to grow to be a much larger retail than it is today, I think that's true. If it can deliver even you know a small net margin over that larger volumes, I think today's share price is pretty cheap. And that is the question, I think, for investors. Are you prepared to be A, believe that, and B, wait for that to happen? Now, we know loss-making or, or only moderately profitable businesses are struggling right now share price-wise as they should because higher rates mean that future profits are worth less. And so the longer we have to wait for Kogan to deliver that outcome, the less the shares are worth in a relative sense. That's absolutely true. But I do think this is a business that can be meaningfully bigger in the fullness of time, four, five, six, seven years, whatever it is, if that growth trajectory continues. And I do think that's true. If you look at the e-commerce growth around the world and in Australia, even businesses like Maya are delivering you know 25 odd percent online sales growth. So if that can continue for a reasonable period of time, then I think you get up with a much bigger Kogan. And at that level, they've got to deliver a few margin points, a few percentage points of margin at the bottom line to be well and truly worth more than the current price. That is the key question for me. This acquisition, look, it's an easy one, one half million bucks. Uh, it adds some volume, it adds some scale. That's probably good for a low margin business. Uh, they've done the same with Dick Smith before. They've done uh, Mighty Ape in New Zealand. So it's a well-worn playbook for Kogan. There is some decent question from the market. Say, so, hey, can they really deliver? Can they really get bigger? Can they really sustain higher margins? I think the answer is probabilistically yes, why I own the shares, but it's certainly not a slam dunk. All right. So you're holding it, in other words. Yeah, look, I still think it's a buy, quite honestly. I think it's too no. cheap not to. So yep. if it was, if you're asking me, I'm saying it's a buy, but I'm definitely not selling right as a result, no. Okay, all right. Ben, um, and perhaps you can talk to, I guess, the broader part of that sector as far as uh, discretionary is concerned, what you're seeing at the moment, particularly with those online retailers. Yeah, look, I, I've, I think it's starting to look interesting, probably, Kogan. I mean, it's not a stock that we own, but, um, you know, what in the coming sort of year, they're going to be cycling against much weaker numbers. Um, and that's the problem almost that they've had this year is cycling against very strong comps during the lockdowns, etc. Um, if, you know, as Scott was saying, if they can put the inventory issues to bed, um, that's going to be a major tick. And it's bringing that margin back onto the onto the revenue that they've been generating. It's 
I think built out quite a good brand in Australia and um, you know the, the thing I, I didn't also like you know a year or two ago was there was such aggressive insider selling that was coming from the two founders of Kogan and you know you just to me you stay away from stocks when you're seeing that I mean I guess get while it's happening but every time it had a leg up they would just seem to be in the market dumping their holdings into it but now I you know I, I'd agree I, I think the valuation looks a lot more reasonable um, you know where they're at going forward looks better I guess the only question is going to be you know a lot of the items they do sell is in that discretionary retail space and we're going to be going into I think a very different um, consumer and economic environment in 2023 so whether the industry as a whole has a bit of a, um, a pullback next year I could see that being on the cards all right Hold so, for me. A hold. Yeah. Okay. So that is our stock of the day. Kogan. Right. Let's get into the ones as picked by you. The first one, Suncorp. Uh, Tony's saying, I hold it and would like the panel's view on whether it will outperform the index over the next 12 months or should I sell and buy the index? Uh, ben, what are your thoughts then? It's obviously that financial service conglomerate yeah. uh, owns those brands such as Amy, Apia, Bingle, GIO. What are your thoughts, particularly also that consider the dividend too, I guess. Yeah, you? yeah. I mean, no, no one, Tony, no one can tell you if this stock's going to outperform the index. It's if we all knew what the index was going to do next year, we'd be we'd be wealthy. I, I, I you know, I think Suncorp for me, insurance companies have been a an area of safety for a lot of investors because they experience a beneficiary. You know, they're a beneficiary of those rising bond yields. They're getting a higher return on the capital that they need to set aside for future payouts. And, you know, rates have moved so hard so fast that those returns have, have risen quite dramatically. But what has been, I think, offsetting it for most of this year has been, um, you know, the higher um, payouts that they've been having to make because of all of these unprecedented weather events that we've been experiencing across the country. So. You know, Suncorp to me, it, it, it's been, I think the share price to be honest reflects it. it. It was a higher share price five years ago and it's really just gone sideways for five years. And now for me would not be the time to be buying this stock because, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the theme around owning insurance companies as a hedge against inflation and bond yields is very well known. It feels like a bit of a crowded trade to me in the market. and. I'm actually of a similar view to Scott that you, look, no one knows, but I, I think you might see inflation come off faster than everyone's expecting. And bond yields, I think at best go sideways. Um, and you know, maybe in the second half of the year, they start to taper lower, which wouldn't, you know, the, the, head, the tailwind for insurance companies starts to become a bit of a headwind. The, the real problem for insurance companies, I think these days is, is the reinsurance programs that they do. Um, but look, it, it's a solar company. As you said, Andrew, it pays a good dividend. Um, you're not going to lose sleep. I think over owning Suncorp, um, is it going to outperform the market? I've got no idea. So a hold? I'd say a hold at best. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't be buying it. I guess if, yeah. I, if, I was, if I was just looking for something I could sleep at night, get a nice dividend yield, and I wasn't expecting too much, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to hold it. If I'm looking for growth, I'd be selling it. All right. Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, I think Ben's done a, a really nice job, Andrew, of summing up the, the situation with both the company and the investment thesis. I'll jump on his bandwagon. No one knows where the share price is going to be in 12 months. So if you're an investor and saying, can it beat the market over 12 months? I'm saying, I don't know. I don't think anybody else knows either. Uh, they may tell you they do. Maybe they even do, but I don't know how they would know that. So uh, let's put that in the too hard basket. If you're looking for 12 months, 
you probably shouldn't even be in shares, either, either frankly, Suncorp or an ETF, because we've seen this year, we saw during COVID and other times, uh, who knows what happens in 12 months. If you've got a 12-month time horizon, we can't give individual advice, but I'd say people be in cash. Uh, I know it's not very exciting. It's not what we're here to talk about necessarily, but 12 months is way too short to be investing in shares, given the, the, the range of possible outcomes over those short time periods. Uh, I'm also with Ben in terms of the, uh, the analysis here. I don't think over a longer time period, I'm just going to simply choose my own time period here, uh, with respect to the questioner, if I'm looking over five years, I don't see how Suncorp beats the market from here. Um, PE 15 or so, lots of moving parts there, of course, with the sale of the banking business. So hard to hard to really pin down what a long-term earnings looks going to look like. But are there preconditions for businesses like these at, you know, not super high uh, PEs, but certainly not cheap PEs, to outperform the market? It's either got to have a PE expansion or profit growth that's faster than the market, add some dividends in there as well, of course. Is that likely? I don't think so. Not over three to five years. So uh, I wouldn't own Suncorp if I was trying to beat the market. To Ben's point, you know, if you're looking for income, maybe beating the market isn't your permanent idea. Maybe looking for something else besides Suncorp could be an option. Wouldn't be my favorite group of income producing stocks, quite honestly. So uh, if you owned it for income, I guess I'd hold to Ben's point. Uh, but I agree with you might also sell this one if you're looking to beat the market. And you should be if you're picking individual stocks. Otherwise, for the question is point, although over a long period, buy an ETF instead. All right. Okay. An ETF instead. Let's um, continue in the uh, finance sector. We're going to move on to net wealth. Uh, Alan wanting to know about this. Um, it uh, well, it is that, uh, that uh, platform for... Uh, for, for funds there uh, competing with, I guess, the likes of those legacy ones, A&P, BT, Westpac, um, CBA and the like, Colonial. Um, then it's also, it's looking to be a disruptor. And in that field also, you've got, uh, you've got Hub24. Um, Scott, just taking a look at the share price, what it hit a high mm. back about two years ago, and then it's sort of just slid since then. Mm. So what are your thoughts? And still on 50-odd times earnings, by the way. So this is probably... There was there was a was a view. I think hopefully it's been beaten out of most investors now that tech was somehow going to beat everything because it was tech, and and that was true for a decent period of time. But there's no reason why technology stocks, not company stocks, shares need to beat the rest of the market. There's nothing inherently better about them than anything else because it comes down to the price you pay. As always, you do quality and you do price. That's how you work out whether something's worth buying. Right there is. Sometimes a cheap enough price for a terrible business, but very, very rarely. You might be able to get a moderate business at a very cheap price and do okay, but you want quality businesses and you want a good price. And what we've seen over that two-year period, as you talked about, Andrew, is people kind of did the whole, well, tech will win, therefore I could pay any price for this thing, therefore I'm going to make a fortune. And unfortunately, we've seen the folly of that view. Um, I, I did see a, a graph recently of ARK Investments, Kathy Wood's vehicle, uh, versus Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway over a period of time. And for the, for the longest time and not for the first time, uh, people had thought Warren Buffett had lost it and the future was in tech. And guess what? Echoes of 1999, 2000. Yep, we ended up with the reverse happening. Of course, Buffett is now ahead again. The, the key thing here is making sure you understand the business that you own. I think NetWealth is doing a spectacular job. It's a really high quality business. It is doing a wonderful job of disrupting this sector. If it was priced more reasonably right the way through, investors would have done a whole lot better owning these shares over that time period. But we got it too far ahead of ourselves, bid this thing up to the moon because it was going to somehow be the best thing ever. And we're paying the price for that over exuberance, I think. At 50 times earnings, I'm still not going to say it's a buy, but the growth trajectory has been very, very good. I think if you owned it, you probably like it. It's a quality business. It seems to be doing the right things. There are others in the space, by the way, so Hub24 being one of them. Um, so it's not a, not a slam dunk to net wealth will necessarily win, but I think it's probably 
the preeminent player in the area. I think it's probably most likely to continue to gobble up market share for a decently long period of time to come. I'm not going to pay 50 times earnings for it. It might have to fall not too far. You could probably make a case for 35 to 40 times earnings if you believed the growth can continue for an extended period of time. I think it's probably likely, but it still makes it too expensive for me. So it's a, it's a solid hold with a reminder that the shares could still halve from here and the SPE would still be 25. So just keep mm. that in mind as well. Yeah, okay, good points. Ben? Yeah, I, I, I'd be on board of all of that. I, I, some things I'd add is I think there are some signs that Hub24 is starting to take market. These two have sort of been in an arm wrestle. They're the two big entrants into the market. They've invested very aggressively in the best technology stack. Uh, they've come mm. in on very competitive fee rates. And, uh, you know, for those who don't know the industry too well, the, the dominant players, you know, 10 or 15 years ago were AMP, Macquarie, um, IOOF was a big player. Um, and in hindsight, these guys were all um, overcharging and under-investing um, to prop up other parts of their business, I think, generally. And it was just ripe for disruption. And, and so there's been a lot of regulatory change that's happened in our industry, which um, is encouraging um, advisor groups to look around um, and to look at businesses that they think can actually partner with them. I mean, we had Hub24 in our office a couple of weeks ago, so um, we know them well. I, I, I think both of these um, are very well regarded. Um, but to me, it just seems like Hub might be starting to pull away the recent um, farm update has been better. Another thing I'd just say um, on top of um, Scott's comments there was that the these guys potentially are a winner out of higher interest rates, which sounds, you know, it's weird how these settings can affect different businesses and it's not sort of obvious always. But one thing that happened was when, um, when rates went to zero, it, it did squash the cash margins that these guys were earning. And you know, we're talking about billions of dollars that these guys have got on cash. And what you tend to find is when the rates have improved as quickly as they have, they've probably been a bit slower to pass that on on the platform to the end investors. And you'll probably also find people get a little bit less, um, you know, rate sensitive as rates move higher, whereas they get very sensitive when it gets close to zero. Um, and as a result of that, um, they can get they can gain some margin, and the margin actually can be quite healthy. So um, I have seen some um, some of the brokers sort of saying, you know, these potentially are winners out of higher interest rate environments. We haven't really seen that come through, but mm. certainly Hub, you know, if you looked at their share price chart recently, it's significantly outperformed. It's on the back of a um, better than expected last quarterly, and and that's probably my pick of the two, but. Look, valuation, they both looked expensive. There's a lot of future growth baked in, which I think will come, but you're already paying for that today if you're paying these prices. Net wealth, hold, I'd like to buy it on a probably quite a bit lower share price um, than it's at today. Yep, okay, that's net wealth. Well, let's stay uh, in that uh, sector and we're gonna move on to GQG Partners. Daryl Wannington about this. In fact, the, the share price chart looks very similar to that of NetWealth. That's a reflection of where the business is going at the moment. Funds under management. Uh, end of October, 83, close to 84 billion, um, up from just 79 in September. So it is growing, those funds under management. Also, uh, geographically, it's expanding at the same time. So, Ben, interested then your thoughts on GQG. 
This is an interesting one because I, you know, this is a new this is a new float on our market. It's been a bit of a weird company to float on the ASX because it's actually a US based listed. It's a US um, funds management business. Um, its performance has been very um, healthy in recent years. The the fund managers there seem to have picked, you know, this big rotation of money that we've seen in the market. And there was a lot of um, uh, there was a lot of optimism about this business when it floated. And I think the float price was probably the all time high for the stock price, um, as opposed to a Magellan or a Pinnacle or some of its listed counterparts you know, which have experienced much tougher times recently. I think this company has actually probably done quite well, you know, but what we have seen is that all of these, uh, a big feature of 2022 has been listed fund managers have been smashed. And um, I think, you know, it's a combination of uh, investors losing faith with some fund managers who have had significant negative performance versus indexes. We've seen issues with personnel, you know, at some of the fund managers, there's this ongoing pressure on margin on fund managers and the ETF, um, you know, rise seems to continue. Um, so I, I, I think this probably looks like a buy, um, you know, because I, I think if, you, if you're going to pick one out at the moment, I would say this is actually the one that's delivering. The share price hasn't, so it's got a lot cheaper. Um, the yield looks good. I, I know that um, you know there's a very close time between how the portfolio and fund managers are remunerated versus the share price. A lot of it actually is in shares, um, and so there's a you know that they've got a lot of incentive to get this share price going. Mm. It is a bit of an unusual structure where that that they said the logic in listing in Australia. I mean the company's say on it was. Um, a lot of their original big um, investors were Australian um, industry super funds. Um, and so they said, we wanted to be closer to our key clients. That seemed a bit weird to me. Um, and I think, you know, a year ago when these guys listed, the Australian market was paying a much higher multiples for listed fund managers. And I think they were smart enough to see that and mm. get this float away. So, um, you know, it is a bit unusual. Uh, Life 360 is another business a bit like this, which you would look at and say that's got to be a US listed business, but it's actually bizarrely listed here. But apart from that, I think it looks pretty good. Well, to the point where you've got to buy on it, Scott, do you agree? Uh, not quite as game as Ben, but the rationale holds up nicely. Uh, I don't tend to love new floats, I have to say, uh, particularly in a space where you are dealing with a business whose assets walk in and out of the building every day. I mean, the assets, I guess, are the funds under management, but the ability to keep those, as we've seen with Magellan and others over the last little while, uh, that, that is indicative on who's in the chair and how well they're doing. So I, I genuinely would like to see more time on market before going near it. A, you want to see how they operate as a public company. B, you want to see some track record as a public company with those regulated disclosure. Now, of course, prospectus documents have some of that information in it. Uh, generally speaking, though, yes, you might lose some upside if you don't jump into a float, but uh, we've seen more than enough of them to realize that some of them go very badly indeed for reasons of either overpricing or maybe the company isn't quite as good as we might hope it is. So I'm going to give that one a little bit of a miss. To, to Ben's point, though, um, the asset management space, this should be an attractive area because you've got you're clipping the ticket on a growing market for starters. So the, the ASX goes up over time. That should be a good thing. More world markets do the same. And you've got people adding more money to those markets with individual savings, pension plans, superannuation, all that kind of stuff. So they should be in a good space. But as we said, 
you've often seen the fact that even despite that, two things happen. One is funds or so fees tend to come under pressure. Two is funds can walk out the door and with very, very uh, quick rapidity if you have a situation where people simply lose faith in that particular fund manager or their strategy. So, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know that we, we know it not well enough. Let me spit that out. I don't think we know it well enough to say it's an absolutely a sell. It doesn't look expensive. So, I guess if you're bargain hunting, it makes it to have a look at this one. I'm just not confident enough at this point with enough data, enough you know, water under the bridge to jump in. This one's a solid hold for me. It's a solid watch and wait. Give it a little bit more time as a public company, and then maybe go and have a look. Okay, good one. Let's move on to block of course in the buy now pay later space um goodness how times have changed um <laughs> a year ago it was all the rage well i guess that was replaced by lithium this year wasn't it to some degree um as uh, as the thing to get on uh, of course it did pick up after pay at the beginning of the year so it's dual listed uh, in australia and the states yeah, so Scott, what are, you, what are your thoughts then on block and i guess you know uh, more broadly uh, the sector of bnpl at the moment yeah, really good question. So, of course, Block bought Afterpay, but it's now a much bigger, or part, part of a much bigger finance business. Uh, people might know those square terminals. So, Block, of course, was called Square once upon a time. Those little square, uh, you know, white terminals you'll see at, at maybe coffee shops or farmers markets. Increasingly, uh, the square terminals being used in retail cafes and that kind of stuff. I really like the old square business, I have to say. So, I like didn't like buy now pay later either. I, I thought the the Afterpay guys got a spectacularly good deal. They sold out literally almost exactly at the top. So fantastic timing for them. If their shareholders took the money or sold out, they did very very well. If you took the block shares instead, unfortunately that sh- that uh, crash shows you exactly what happened since. So hopefully more than a few people took the money instead and ran. The challenge for for Square to mine is uh, a buy now pay later. I think is not as good as anyone ever thought it was. I really do think it's a much lower quality category than most people give it credit for, uh, simply because of the structure of the industry. And particularly, the it's had some really nice inside running on the bank, some regulatory, uh, shall we say, <laughs> turning a blind eye. Um, and by the way, they're allowed to uh, prohibit the retailers from passing on the costs of that, where the credit card companies, for example, aren't allowed to. So it got a very, very nice couple of free kicks from the regulators, at least the credit reporting, the credit code application seems to be being bought under uh, you know, over the, the afterpay and, and buy now pay later providers, which is a very, very good thing. Whether or not, I think they should, by the way, the RBA rolls back that allowance to basically contravene the law and allow them to do that. Um, those things will tell us whether they're working on, a, on an even keel. So there are a couple of risks coming down the pike for buy now pay later broadly, afterpay in particular in this case. And I, But I really like the Square business. What I'm a little bit mindful of is Jack Dorsey, the founder of Square, the CEO who also founded and, uh, and ran a Twitter for a while, um, this, he's going, you know, the reason it's called Block is he's going very crypto. And I'm not at all convinced that is a good move for Block or what was called Square. So, you know, it's one of those things where you have a great business and then a corporate strategy that seems, to my mind, questionable at best, that keeps me well and truly away. Now, if I'm wrong about crypto, if I'm wrong about Square's growth, if Jack kind of gets religion a bit like Mark Zuckerberg did and, and kind of shelve that stuff and go back to the core business, this could be worth a lot more. It will, I think, hinge a lot on what Jack Dorsey does with this business. Um, at the moment, though, too rich for my blood. The broader buy now pay later uh, space, I think, exactly the same, Andrew. I do think it's sailing into some really choppy waters. Some very, very strong tailwinds are going to become reasonably strong headwinds. Uh, very, very difficult. There's, last check, there was, I think, eight or nine different listed buy now pay later providers on the Australian market. Keep in mind, there's three 
global credit card companies. Yeah. So, you know, it tells you everything you need to know about this space. No, not going to touch it, saying well and truly clear. At some point, maybe there's some wreckage to pick up or you see some better prices and maybe some better opportunities. Um, but until and unless we see that some of those changes brought to bear and the market price probably reflect that, I'm staying away. If I own Block today, I would sell. If Jack Dorsey was to pull away from his crypto fascination and go back to the core business, I'd absolutely be interested in buying. Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, ben? I think it's a buy. No, um, all right. Yeah, I'll go the other way on that yeah. one. Um, but I, I agree on the crypto side, <clears throat> um, but you know, I just think Jack Dorsey's probably, he's smart enough to hopefully see that that might be a, a bit of the wrong view. It, who knows? Um, but I think on the, you know, Square, the, the big thing that drives Square, the, or Block, is the, is the Square Cash app. And it's um, effectively what this business within Block is doing is disrupting US banking. And um, I think there's about 70 million Americans that now use this as their effectively default banking platform. Mm. Um, and the logic in the Afterpay acquisition was trying to put together the consumers they built into the Square Cash app together with merchants which are on the afterpay side and help sort of create this you know this flywheel that they speak about and obviously in hindsight they pay way too much for afterpay um, it was script based i would say so you know um, if you look at it square was probably also completely overvalued at that time as well um, but still uh, they would have got it way cheaper if they just held off for 12 months you know, that's, that's history. Um, I think the market has largely written off most of the value of the afterpay business by now. Mm. Um, but I think what's, you know, left with Block is you've got probably, you know, Jack Dorsey invented Twitter and then he went on to start Square. And it's become, you know, on some people believe that, you know, it's a bigger thing than um, JP Morgan now as a bank um, in, in America. So... Uh, it's a um, it's a pretty formidable business. It's got a lot cheaper during the year, and I'd say you know every quarterly that it's had, it's continued to beat the street's expectations. So the the actual momentum within the business is still very strong. It's just that these businesses have been very susceptible to the changes in interest rates that we've seen this year, and mm. you know they've gone from trading on 120 times to 50 times or something like that over over the past 12 months. All right. Well, there we go. We've got a market right there that Scott is selling and Ben is buying block. All right. We better pick up the pace. Uh, we're getting into our fifth stock in traditional finance in the form of Westpac. Jenny, wanted to know about this. Uh, ben, of course, all at the moment that's coming down to these net interest margins, given where uh, interest rates are going at the moment. Uh, it's also embarking on cost reductions. So how are you looking at Westpac at the moment? Uh, it's probably a hold. Um, I'd say CBA, you know, for me, I, I don't think I'd be alone in saying it's a standout of the banks, although you are paying for it valuation-wise versus Westpac at the moment. Um, going into 2023, I think the question is going to be what happens with bad and doubtful debt provisioning, which is still very close to all-time lows. So it's it's a fraction of their loan book, and you just think that's got to that's got to move. Um, the share price has had a good year this year. You know, it's paid a really nice dividend and it's probably up about 10% on, on the capital on top of that over the year. You know, I think Westpac has definitely had some um, operational issues. They'd be the first to admit. Um, and you can see there the longer term um, performance of the bank has not been so good. Uh, but yeah, I mean, higher interest rate environment, normally an improving uh, NIM environment, net interest rate margin environment. Um, 
Another question is going to be the, you know, there's definitely a lot of competition between the banks on the home loan side and Westpac is exposed to that. Um, there's going to be, I, I suspect, as all these, you know, this um, fixed loan cliff that we've all been hearing about rolls off, there's going to be a lot of refinancing that's occurring. I think a lot of consumers will be going back to their mortgage brokers and trying to find the best deal that they can. So um, that might put some pressure on those margins. So look, I, I'll go a hold. Mm. Okay, Scott? Oh, Scott, you might be on mute at the moment, I think. You are absolutely right, Andrew. My apologies, <laughs> mate. Uh, a quick, quick drink of Coke and I had to open the can. You've absolutely you got me. Uh, so there, look, Westpac, I think Ben's right. Westpac is a really is a really interesting place to think about this company moving into 2023. I have a suspicion the share price will be meaningfully different at the end of the year from the beginning, but I don't know in what direction. So Ben's talked about the net interest margins improving. That should be a really nice tailwind for the big four banks. They should take full use of that. They probably will. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see their cash needs improve meaningfully. So that's a good sign. When I say meaningfully, by the way, I'm talking about in the context of less than 2% NIMS, so it might be you know, 0.1, 0.2, something like that at best. But that's a big, big move when you think about um, the, the base for those NIMS. So that should help them. The key question we've got is whether or not the property market continues to fall, how far it falls, and what issues it causes, as Ben said, when you have the rollover from fixed to variable, when people, if they do start to lose their jobs, if interest rates simply get too high and they can't afford the repayments, what happens to the housing market? What happens to bad and doubtful debts? Both the provision for them and the realised expenses. Because we know, and I am massively critical of our big four banks and others, by the way, every single time we have a, a, an increase in bad and doubtful debts, everyone looks around and says, hey, who knew? And the rest of us say, we knew you should have been providing for that. That's exactly what provisions are, right? They're money you put aside in the good times for when the bad times come. And yet, every single time we have a market downturn, the banks have to take extra provisions in the moment for those things they should have known were going to come into riskier territory. So if we have a meaningful downturn in any of those metrics in 2023, the banks are going to hurt. And, and those we saw during COVID, the size of those write-downs, the size of those provisions are really, really significant. So again, I'm not predicting them necessarily. I don't know which way this is going to go. If you look at the bank and say, hey, 13.6 times earnings I've got here, something like that, that looks pretty inexpensive, right? It's not super cheap. There are cheaper banks. There are more expensive banks. Commonwealth Bank, last I checked, was on 19 times, which is just extraordinary. Um, if you're asking me whether I should buy us a ladder, I'm selling Commonwealth Bank right now. Whether Westpac needs to be bought or sold at this point, I think it's just too hard to know. It seems reasonably fairly priced. There may be some short-term pain. I don't think that short-term pain becomes long-term pain unless things get really, really ugly, in which case all bets are off across the market. So I think hold is the right thing to do. I don't think you can buy Westpac given the circumstances for property in particular, but also the risk of business loans going sour if the economy does go south as well. All right. Let's uh, sum it up then where we've been for the first half of the show. We began with our stock of the day, which was uh, Kogan. And, <clears throat> excuse me, Scott owns it. He does have a buy on it. And uh, Ben, he's got a hold saying it's got sort of reasonable value at the moment. Uh, Suncorp, it is a hold from Ben and a no from Scott. Net wealth, a uh, hold from both. GQG Partners, a buy from Ben, a hold from Scott. Uh, he doesn't well, know it well enough, he, he says, to actually um, make a move on it. Uh, block, a, a difference of opinion here, which we like. Um, initially, well, Scott said it was an avoid, but in fact, he's selling it, whereas uh, Ben sees the potential here, particularly as it's disrupting the US uh, banking sector. He's got a buy on it. And Westpac there, as we heard, it is a hold from both. 
All right. Now, of course, uh, we do hold our own conviction, uh, high conviction uh, fund here at uh, Ausbridge, which is picked by our investment committee. The latest episode of that committee is live for you to watch at ausbridge.com. So checking in on the update into December, into the new year. BAPCOR and Domino's were removed. Index and Janus and Education were added and Elders, the weighting there was increased. And in terms of performance thus far, up by just over 5% on a cumulative return basis since the beginning of March. So keep sending in your requests and keep the call switched on to see which stocks our committee will be looking at next. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while, and although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools, plus our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own underlying assets. Consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum for CMC Pro accounts at our website. Coming up in January, the call Superbuy. All your favourite experts, one Superbuy. If an expert really loves a stock, all they have to scream is Superbuy. And it will go straight to the investment committee. All of January, exclusive to the call. Only on Ausbiz. All right, welcome back. Well, we're now going to dip the second half of the show, looking more on the resources side uh, with Meridian Energy, Coronado Global, uh, SSR Mining, Genesis Energy, and Oz Minerals. So let's kick it off with uh, Meridian Energy. It is uh, a Kiwi uh, electricity generator and retailer. In fact, I think it um, generates around 35% of the country's uh, energy needs. It also just uh, announced that it's constructing a battery storage system on New Zealand's North Island. Ben, Meridian Energy. Yeah, this is, um, I reckon this is a pretty good business. It's, um, it owns a lot of critical infrastructure to the New Zealand market. So uh, the bulk of the um, production that they own is hydro. And um, it is, a, it's weirdly a bit cyclical in that um, if they have, you know, a heavy snow season, then they tend to get a lot of power generation coming out of that and vice versa. Um, but, you know, we've, we've been, We've owned quite a lot of these businesses, um, you know, so Duet and Spark Infrastructure were two that we owned in the past that both got taken over. I think the public markets underestimate the value that is in these businesses. You know, in the last um, 12 months, we saw Sydney Airport, which was another one of ours, get taken out. There's just, there's less and less of these critical infrastructure stocks on the market. And um, they're, you know, they're getting, I think, increasingly combed over and looked at. And um, Meridian, I'd, I'd say it's a buy. I, I think it's, um, it's got a good market. Um, New Zealand is, a, is a, a country that is going to struggle to move to new forms of energy rapidly just because of the size of the country and, and other factors. So um, I think you wanna have some exposure to these sort of businesses. Um, APA is another one, Transurban's another one. Auckland Airport's are one that we own. Um, you know, and they're, they're just like to us, they're backstops of portfolios where, mm. um, you know, there's generally a nice income stream that comes out of them. Um, but there's also something which is incredibly defensive. And I'd also say these have generally been quite good inflation hedges because most of these assets have got um, mechanism, pricing mechanisms where they can build that inflationary pressure into the um, pricing that they pass on to the end customer. 
All right. And as you say, uh, sort of slim pickings at the moment because some of them are uh, being picked off at mm. the moment, particularly in that infrastructure area. Scott, your thoughts on Meridian? Yeah, Ben's done a great job in, in describing the business. It is a really, really good business. I think he's absolutely right. Uh, it, you know, you've got your business like you've got a lock on a third of New Zealand's energy production. Pure renewables too, by the way, so there's less risk when it comes to the source of that energy production when the regulations or political or public views change. That's a really positive thing. You're not going to be you're going to be knocked out anytime soon. No one is going to try and take you on when you're that big. I shouldn't say no one, I suppose, but uh, only crazy brave. Uh, we'll try and yeah, get in the New Zealand market and try and take some of that market share away. There's simply got enough of it to go around. So you're in a really, really nice position. My challenge, I think, comes from the business's valuation. On, on my numbers, trading at 39 times earnings and a 3.3% dividend yield. And you ask yourself, a little like we started with Suncorp, where, where, do, where does market beating return come from from Meridian Energy? Can it grow earnings faster than the market over the next five years or so? I doubt it. Um, at 39 times earnings, is there upside in the price? Anything's possible, but that'd be purely sentiment alone. I, I think if you gave me a business like Meridian eight times out of 10, maybe seven times out of 10, probably nine times out of 10, um, you, you're going to struggle to beat the market with a business like this. It's a perfectly fine defensive asset. It's a great business, as I said. Um, but as we started with at the top of the show, if you're not going to beat the market by an ETF, now there are reasons people might want to own this. Maybe you want to diversify your income. Maybe you want a more defensive company you simply don't want as much business volatility operational volatility i get why you might want to but if you're doing that you are making a very significant trade-off so given we've got to do a buy hold or sell based on something mm -hmm. my only um, my only approach when i do these is is it going to be market beating if not by the index yeah not saying everyone has to do that but on that basis for me it's a sell um, at a slightly cheap price it might be a hold i wouldn't be buying this it'd have to drop a meaningful way from here, I think, to be offering market-beating potential. Yeah, okay, uh, good one. Once again, diversity of opinion right there with Meridian. All right, well, let's uh, get into, well, from renewables into the old stuff, the dirty <laughs> stuff, as some might call it, in coal, Coronado Global Resources. Uh, it is the international producer of metallurgical coal. Um, and uh, just looking at uh, Macquarie has put an outperform rating on it uh, at the moment, seeing a potential upside around 50%. Ben, what are your thoughts on Coronado? Um, this is a tricky one. I, I, I'd probably go buy. Um, I'm in a buying mood today. I've had Indeed. more advice for a while, but I, you know, I can see that with China, bizarrely, you know, completely U-turning on zero COVID, um, there's gonna be a period of tumultuous stuff going on in that country for some time but there's also probably going to be another big fiscal stimulus program that comes through next year and that's what a lot of resource stocks have been i think you know a lot of money's getting excited about and coronado um you know i guess one you could look at it and say oh it's done well but nowhere near is the it's not thermal coal so it's not the the, the black coal that's benefited from the war in the Ukraine. Um, this is the key ingredient in steelmaking, as you said, Andrew. And um, they own some of the lowest coal producing assets globally, um, particularly the Curramine that West Farmers sold to them some years ago. It's probably one of the best um, uh, meteorological coal mines on the planet. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I, I can see an environment going forward where we do um, see a strong uptake in, in steel production. Um, and the thing with these coal stocks at the moment, PEs are completely meaningless because the coal prices are strong. Mm. In the case of thermal, they're phenomenal. Mm. Um, and the, the, you've got to take a bet on what the coal price is going to do. You look at New Hope or uh, Whitehaven, 
they're probably trading on like one or two times forward earnings if this coal price holds for another 12 months. That's a massive if. And the market's basically saying it's not going to hold and at some stage it's got to come back significantly. And if it halves, which would still be three or four times higher than it was 15 months ago, they're probably trading on like eight to 10 times and they're probably about right. Mm. Um, Because at the moment they're just spewing out these cash and these huge dividends. And the same is going to be true with Coronado where, um, you know, the market's already saying the coal price is going to fall. It's by how quickly and how much. And it, it might not be as quickly or rapidly, I'd say. So without wanting to sit, sit on the fence and say a hold, because yep. it's not the sort of stock we would buy, <laughs> mm. I, I think it does look kind of interesting. Yeah, okay. Scott? <laughs> Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share most of what Ben said, but I'm going to have a different outcome. <laughs> okay. uh, I, ben, ben, is, ben is obviously full of the Christmas spirit. I've gone full Grinch. What I might go with next. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe I, I, got, I got to put the Christmas hat on, do something else. So look, I, I think Ben's absolutely right, 100% right about the current price, the likely future price direction if we don't know the time or the size. So that, that's absolutely spot on in my view. Um, not that Ben needs my reassurance to say he's right, but I, I think he is right in this case. What, I, what I've said regularly and publicly before is it then depends on what you do with the cash. Now, if you're in a situation where we see some of that paid in dividends, that's going to be great. At the moment, the yields on, on Coronado are 8%, I think. Um, I looked up New Hope as well, funnily enough, Ben, uh, paying 14%, 14.4% trailing yields. Now, let's say they pay that for one or even two years. And then what? If they retain the cash, what are they going to do with it? Are they going to build more coal mines? Are they going to do something else? I think the real challenge for these businesses that potentially are stranded assets, if you believe that governments will follow through on the climate science and public policy and public opinion will do the same, the question is, what, what is the end game for some of these companies? Because anything times zero is eventually zero. Anything, you spin up a zero on the roulette wheel, that's what you get. So uh, to my mind, it's just a real question about, even though it's so, if this, were, if this was a trading company, this was Coca-Cola or, I don't know, something else that had, had a reasonably good long-term sense of where the business might be in five, seven, 10, 15 years, you say, okay, well, it's super cheap right now. The market's getting it wrong. Sure, you make a lot of money. Let's make hay while the sun shines, and then we'll go back to normal, and this business goes on forever. If you buy this, you either have to believe you're going to be able to sell it at a higher price or just a better ter- total shareholder return once you get that dividend. That's possible in the medium term. I don't, I don't have a view on that. But in the long term, what is, what is Cole's future in three, five, seven, ten years? I don't know. I really don't know. So it's not a case of saying, I know what's going to happen and therefore it's a sell for me. It is simply a case of if I knew that these they were going to go and do something else with that money, with the extra profit they're not paying as a dividend, is it being... Is there a being returned to shareholders? Is it investing in some other business that is less susceptible to the stranded asset problem? I'd be far, far more interested. Mm. At the end of the day, the biggest coal mine if it ends up getting shut down still gets shut down. So that might be too pessimistic of me. Certainly, I've got to say, at these prices and these uh, these coal prices, it's certainly not a bad time. If you are going to buy, this is absolutely the time to do it. I think Ben's right. Um, but I've got to say, I just I don't have a view on how likely it is that these guys have a three, five, 10, 15 year future as coal miners, what the government will allow them to do, what taxes might be put in place, what limitations on export, for example, might be put in place, or simply how the energy mix changes. Given that circumstance, even with metallurgical coal, um, green hydrogen, other things, it's just, it's just too, to my mind, too hard to know. If you're out there watching and you say, you know what, I, I don't care, Scott, I disagree with you, or I'm happy to take the risk, and I absolutely get it. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, I'm a sucker for, for cheap business. When I lose ship, you're like, well, how could you miss out? The answer for me is, I don't have enough faith in what the 10-year picture looks like, and so I simply can't buy them despite what seem like very, very attractive metrics. All right. 
So uh, you're holding it though, or you're selling it? I'd be well. I mean, if you if you hold it, you probably own it. you probably bought it for different reasons than I would, right? So yeah. I guess having not held it in the first place, I, I would personally sell it if I had it. Yeah. Um, I think they've done very very nicely. The share prices are up. They're probably down a little bit more recently, but no, I, I, I if I owned it, I'd be selling it, putting the money somewhere else. All right. Okay. Good one. Now we better pick up the pace. So Scott, let's uh, make this uh, fairly <laughs> brief. Uh, we're still digging though. Uh, SSR Mining. Um, yep. formerly Silver Standard Resources. It's based in Denver in the States. Uh, gold, silver, copper, lead, zinc. Um, owns the Marigold Mine in Nevada. What are your thoughts? Mm. Almost got the whole alphabet there. Um, look, I, it, almost to the point of, of coal, I, when it come, we'll talk about this in a couple of companies in the next little while. When it comes to these sort of businesses, you have to have a view on the commodity if you want to have a view on the company because all those guys can do is control their operational costs and um, efficiencies and hope the market's kind price-wise. I don't have a strong enough view on the price of those commodities moving forward. It doesn't look particularly expensive, quite honestly, so I'm not overly negative about it. I'm going to actually say it's a hold for me just because I'm not sure enough to sell it. I wouldn't buy this in the first instance, probably. The time you want to buy gold miners when the gold price is at or near the marginal cost of production. Um, I don't think it's low enough now to make the risk reward attractive enough. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's expensive enough to sell. I don't think it's cheap enough to buy. So it's a right down the middle hold for me, Andrew. All right. Yeah, I'll go hold as well. To be honest, I've never really even come across SSR. It's only been on our exchange for a couple of years. Mm. Um, I know that there's, you know, I think the exploration side of the business is something that you're pinning your hat on if you're in there. And we Mm. all know that there's a, you know, sort of a binary outcome in terms of how that plays out. Um, It would probably worry me somewhat if I was looking at the business from an outsider that in this resource boom that we've seen this year that this company really hasn't done particularly well. Um, And I want to do some more work into trying to work that out because this is the space that a lot of people have wanted to be in this year. Yep. Um, So, you know, I probably want to do more work and um, a hold for now. Okay. All right. Let's head back to New Zealand and in electricity <laughs> generation again, uh, we're going to look at Genesis uh, Energy. In fact, rather renewables, it's more in the space of natural gas, LPG retailing. Scott, uh, what are your thoughts on Genesis? Yeah, this is a tough one. I, I, I really, really dislike energy generation and retailing as a matter of course. Um, it, it, they, it, you're, you're producing a commodity. You're generally betting on future prices when you're setting your retail prices for your customers, assuming you know what you can sell it for. We've seen plenty of retailers here, albeit smaller ones in Australia, um, go to the wall because they simply had, had you know, got their forward contracts wrong. And in that sort of circumstance, it's just a really ugly business. You're reselling a commodity. There's plenty of competition in the space. Do you really want to be in that area? Is that really the best place to make some money? And how, how sure are you that you don't end up rolling to... Go back to my initial uh, original analogy. You know, anything times zero is still zero. So you'd be great for a while and then really struggle. Speaking of great for a while, the profits have been all over the place for Genesis over the past five or seven years. Um, the last couple of years have been pretty good. A few years before that, I'll pretty much break even. So a really, really cyclical business as well. You don't generally want to buy these companies when earnings are at a high. Now, I will confess, I don't know enough about the New Zealand energy market to have a really, really rock solid view. Often you need to know the dynamics of the market they're operating in and the chances of, of competition and disruption. I don't know that super well. It's 15 times earnings as well. It's 15 times elevated earnings. Either the market is really, really optimistic about what the future brings or it's looking backwards, uh, but not far enough and not realizing these things, these things are very, very cyclical, at least historically. Uh, 15 times earnings is about as much as you want to pay. Uh, I'd be inclined to sell it if I knew the market better 
and I was sure that I wasn't missing anything. Uh, but again, without knowing the market well enough, I wouldn't want to give people a bum steer. So let me put that down as a hold. I'm definitely not buying, uh, again, elevated PE, elevated earnings, generally in a cyclical business, not a recipe for success. So a tentative hold, leaning towards lightning or selling if you know the business better. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Ben. Ditto. Hold. Um, I think the earnings of this have been all over the place. I, I think trying to work out what this business is worth is extremely hard. We've seen um, the retailers and, and marketers of energy have had um, a lot of issues locally, AGL and Origin. Um, maybe there's some value in someone taking out this business as we're seeing with Brookfield looking at Origin to make that transition happen to renewables, although New Zealand is a lot further along that path than Australia is and might not need as much help. Um, the stock looks like it's been suspended for most of this year, so mm. I definitely, I didn't actually realise that, but I, I definitely want to be finding out why that, that's never a good look when a stock's suspended. But, you know, th this is, I think, one of those more uniquely New Zealand businesses that I think it's dual listed, Scott, you might know, um, and it's, it's probably one that we, you know, is a liquid and we don't see <clears> as much <throat> about over here. All right. Okay. Well, let's round it out with uh, Oz Minerals. Now, interesting in that, um, in fact, it, it now has entered into that scheme of implementation with uh, BHP, <coughs> excuse me, um, where it's going to pick it up for $9.6 That's around a 50% premium to where it was prior to that proposal back in August, um, which so it's essentially going to fast track BHP's exposure to copper there. So, Ben, I might get... Given that development, mm. I might get your thoughts on BHP as well. Yeah, yeah. So Oz Mineral shareholder, I think you beauty. They've they've received a ripping price versus where the current copper price is. I think BHP is paying for a much um, more optimistic outlook on copper than we're seeing at the moment. But I I I, I think copper looks really interesting. You know, and but the thing I said to you, I was, I was away last week and I saw this guy as a fund manager. We're having a beer, and he, he was saying the he was saying you know everyone's been saying that about copper for the last five years, and it's really just gone sideways. But which is right. But um, the next five years might look different. We saw with lithium there was a period of time where it yo-yoed around before mm. the demand really took off, and we know that with copper, if the world is going to go to zero carbon, copper is probably the most important commodity that we're going to need to make that transition to happen and there is not a substitute for copper that you can use and at the same time um, I th it, it increasingly feels like all of the um, high quality lower risk uh, copper discoveries have have been found there'll be others of course but you know i think the easy work in the early part of last century um, has been done Copper, unlike lithium, is something that's been, you know, sort of in use for centuries and, you know, so there's been a lot of exploration activity occurring over many years. And, um, you know, I, I can see a case where the price of copper could do really well. The removal of Oz Minerals um, leaves a massive hole in our market where mm. the next biggest standalone, I think, would be Samphire. And they've just made this kind of company changing acquisition in Spain, which feels like you know it might go really well for them or um, it might be a disaster I'm, I'm, I'm not sure the Matza uh, mine in Spain um, and then there's daylight you know then there's explorers really so um, you know BHP going back to your question Andrew yep. um, 
if you're looking for copper exposure as an Australian, it looks like the most logical place. I think it's about 27% of their EBIT comes <coughs> from copper. That'll probably change going forward, as particularly as the iron ore price is falling. Um, but um, it's, it's got a lot of good assets under its bonnet. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, that appetite for copper. It's not just, you know, EVs, but like those wind turbines oh, yeah. chew up a huge amount. And of course, we know how they're being rolled out across the planet. So, um, Scott, so sorry, was that at BHP? What are you doing with BHP? I think BHP is a hold. I, right. I, you know, I, I just think commodities are cyclical. Yep. You know, I, I think it's trading on about sort of 18 times earnings now. The yield still looks attractive, but you've got to rem- that, that can change quite yep. quickly. Right. Um, so I want to buy BHP cheaper. Okay. Scott, your thoughts on Oz and then BHP? Yeah, I, I agree with Ben. I think Oz Mineral shareholders should be absolutely stoked that BHP came and paid up. Uh, if you're BHP, you need something big. That's almost kind of by definition. If you want to be meaningfully in copper, you want to be a meaningful part of your asset base, you don't really have a choice. There's no point trying to do one or two things or buy a couple of small things and make something big out of it. You've kind of got to go big or go home. And so there's an element of that in the BHP purchase. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to pay a small fortune to get it. My biggest concern is not the demand side. It's a little bit like most commodities. Everyone can see the demand coming. That's already how the commodity and, and, the, and the shares were priced, right? And so if you're paying more than that, Ben, you mentioned this on, on I think it was the net wealth one. But, you know, the growth, it's already priced for that growth. Now, I don't think copper is expensive or Oz Minerals is as expensive as net wealth. But to some degree, because the trend is obvious, because it's clear, because shareholders know it, because Oz Minerals has those minds, you're kind of already in that space. Uh, so I'm not convinced that BHP is necessarily getting a spectacular deal. I think it makes some sense to diversify, although um, BHP, we've all been around long enough from a BHP buying and selling and buying and selling. It wanted to be big, then it wanted to be small, then it wanted to be big again. Um, I am not, now different management teams to be fair, different corporate culture potentially, but I, I, I'm always just a little bit concerned when BHP goes on these buying sprees. Mm. Um, there was, you know, there's been potash and other things. Hot Brigadier Iron back in the day, for those who remember the HBI uh, debacle. Um, you know, does it need to be? And then again, it sold off oil and gas and wanted to be, you know, wanted to be concentrated again. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure you'd necessarily love this deal as a BHP shareholder. I don't think the shares are cheap. Uh, I don't think Oz Minerals is bought on the cheap. Copper is going to be a growth asset, so maybe you're happy about that, but you've paid a pretty penny for it. Maybe when the dust settles and we forget about the purchase price, BHP shelves are happy to have some copper exposure. I think that's probably true. Um, will it justify the price paid? I'm going to be with a very, very strong maybe. Yeah. I, I'm, be- I'm far from convinced that it wasn't already in the price. BHP price has been said 18 times earnings. That's not cheap. Um, BHP is a great business long term. Operationally, ironically, take their, take their acquisitions aside. Just say, look at the core business. They've done remarkably well for a long period of time. <laughs> They've kind of blotted the copybook only on the M&A front. So hopefully they don't this time around. The shares aren't cheap. If you own it, it's a great business. Hold it. Yeah. Terrific stuff. All right, let's sum it up where we've been for the second half of the show then. Meridian Energy in New Zealand is a buy from Ben. Uh, sees a good income stream there, but it's a sell from Scott. Uh, yeah, we're talking about the Grinch and Santa here at the moment. Uh, Coronado <laughs> Global Resources, a buy from Ben, a sell from uh, Scott, uh, worried about those stranded assets, of course, in coal. SSR Mining, a hold from both Genesis Energy in New Zealand, uh, a sell, but probably a hold from Scott, a hold from Ben. And finally there, well, both agree. Osminals, if you hold it, you've done well, take it. And uh, BHP, which is picking up Oz, it is a hold from both. All right, that is our show for today. Ben, thanks so much for joining us from TMS. Thank you. And have a great Christmas. You too. Scott, likewise, thanks for joining us from uh, Motley Fool and enjoy your Christmas. Thank you, Andrew. Merry Christmas to you, Ben, and all our viewers as well. 
All right, and of course, any stocks you'd like us to cover, flex an email at the call at ausbiz.com.au or tweet us at TV. Coming up on Small Caps, Nadine will be speaking to Dean Fergie as some of the recent downgrades. Stay with us. Thank you.